Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. Be with us this morning. We've been walking through the book of James as a church on Sunday morning, and today we actually complete our journey, and next week we'll begin a new series, and we're calling this new series Following Jesus in the Wilderness. So in Luke's Gospel, there's a turning point in Jesus' ministry. Luke says, He turns His face to Jerusalem. And so from there, in Luke's Gospel, Luke wants us to know that the disciples are on a journey with Jesus to Jerusalem. And in many ways, this journey, Luke wants us to think about the wilderness wanderings and the wilderness journey of Israel of old as they walked towards the Promised Land. But what is more, Luke also wants us to know that this journey with Jesus in the wilderness is a path that walks straight through, not around, the hill of Calvary, the cross. And so what we will be doing in the weeks to come leading up into Good Friday, leading up into Easter, is we will be taking a journey with Jesus through the Gospel of Luke in the wilderness toward that very cross. And I hope you can join us. But right now, let's all dig into James and complete what we started so many months ago. So we'll start in verse 13. I'll read the text and you can follow along. This is God's word. Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church and come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. If you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was a human, as we are. And yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. And then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. Lord, with the words in my mouth, with the meditation of all of our hearts together, be pleasing and acceptable to you. You are a rock and redeemer. Holy Spirit, would you by your empowering presence make this a time where we don't just learn about words and about ideas, but that we would also encounter the living Jesus who is here by the Holy Spirit. We pray this in his name. Amen. When I was in college many years ago, And first learning what it meant to follow Jesus, I had a mentor. And before long breaks, like winter break, fall break, spring break, he would always say the same thing. It was a loving warning to me. He would always say, hey, Joe, when you go on this long break, do not become a functional 
atheist. Do not become a functional atheist. It's a memorable phrase. Obviously, I remember it to this day. I think about it from time to time. But what is it? And what did, what did it mean? Well, to be a functional atheist is to believe in God intellectually, but in all of our functioning, we leave him out of the equation. Functional atheism. We function as if God is not there, even though we believe in him. We believe he's powerful, but we don't live as if he's powerful. We believe he's present, but we don't live as if he's present. We believe in his grace, but we do not believe as we do not live as if that grace were true. And so we become, in a word, functionally atheist. And I think functional atheism gets easier and easier for us in our secular age. The word secularism basically means that you know a group of society tries to live and tries to get along as best in life as possible without God in any equation. And that's the water we swim in. And so I think it becomes more and more of a temptation, even for those of us who believe, who confess the faith, to be functionally atheist. I think functional atheism is more than possible these days. I think it's probable. And I think this temptation is most revealed when we encounter problems in life. In my observation, there tends to be three ways that we tend to approach problems in life where we leave God out of the equation. And I'm just going to name them, and there's probably many more. But in my observation, there's tools that we pick up out of our toolbox just by habit that leave God entirely out of the equation. The first is what I'll call the fix-it tool. This is when we encounter a problem in life. And we put our heads down, we put all of our emotional energy towards solutions. How can I fix this? How can I fix this right now and make things okay in my life? I think the second tool can be the ignore it tool. So some of us put our heads down to try to fix it. Others of us put our heads down to simply duck and sort of ignore the issue altogether and find ourselves with our head down into distractions, be it our job or even our phone or other people's problems. And then there's a third tool, and that is the disparate tool. This is when we put our heads down, not to fix it, not to ignore it, but we put our heads down in a spiral. We despair, we give up hope, because the problem is just too insurmountable. And we don't see a way out. And in my life, I'll be honest, I've used all these tools, but tool number two is sort of my go-to. How about you guys? The ignore it tool. The distract yourself tool. The only problem with this is that none of these ultimately work. I think we all know from experience that none of these work. It's kind of like when you're cleaning peanut butter off of a table after you've had a meal or breakfast. You know what I'm talking about? When you grab that paper towel and you try to wipe the peanut butter off the table, what happens? <laughs> what happens is the peanut butter just gets smeared and sort of just becomes a greater mess than before. And that's what happens when I grab these tools, when I'm encountering something that's so difficult in my life and I grab the fix-it tool or I grab the ignore-it tool or I grab the despair-it tool. I think I'm doing something about it, but really all I'm doing is smearing it around. It's going nowhere. It's just getting bigger and more complicated. So it doesn't work. But more than its sort of lack of functioning is the idea that it's functionally without God. All three of those approaches are functionally without God. We can use those tools while we cognitively assert sort of trust in God, but none of them are functionally embodying that trust, are they? It's functional atheism. 
Well, James here in this text this morning has a totally different path for us, and this is the path of prayer. It's the path of prayer. James here is encouraging a church in the midst of many problems, and if you've been with us in the letter sermon of James, you know all of these intense issues that they were dealing with as early followers of Jesus. And James is basically saying, I don't want you to use your broken tools in these scenarios like the rest of the folks around you. What I want you to do is to avail yourself of something that you have in Christ, and that is prayer. In essence, James is saying, don't live like a functional atheist at all, because that's not who you are. We can pray. Now, this isn't the only teaching, James 5, on prayer that we have in the Bible. So what I'd love to do just before we dive into the text is just helicopter out a minute to explore the diversity of prayer in the Bible. Before we hone in on what James talks about specifically. And so I can think of at least six sort of diverse forms of prayer in the scripture. And there are probably more. And as others have done in books and other teachings, I'm going to try to simplify them. So that we can remember them. And so the first kind of prayer that we see in scripture often are what I'll call hello prayers. Hello. Uh, This is when we simply acknowledge the presence of God in our life. We acknowledge that all that we do can be a sort of living prayer in the presence of God. I mean, there are many times in the Bible, we saw it in our call to worship this morning, where, where God just simply says, be still and know that I am God. And so what we have here is a kind of hello prayer, where we simply say to God, hi, I'm here, you're here. And we can rest in that reliable reality. Those are hello prayers. There's wild prayers, and That's when we express adoration to God, His Word, maybe His world. We simply say to God, wow. Third, there are what some have called thank you prayers. This is when we spend time telling God thank you. In our culture, we have scientific proof that gratitude is good for the human body. This is one of those instances I like to talk about where... Science is catching up with Scripture because we see that we are designed to say thank you. The only problem is that in our society we have no one to say thank you to. But as Jesus followers, we do. We are invited often in Scripture to say thank you to the real provider. To a real person. The Lord. So we have hello prayers and wow prayers and thank you prayers. And we have ugh prayers. Can I get an amen for the UG prayer? Because the UG prayer is when we express confusion, it's when we express anger, it's when we express sadness to God. And these UG prayers are some of the most faithful prayers in the life of a Christian. Despite what others tell you, because they are in touch with reality. They're in touch with the reality of the broken world, they're in touch with the reality of our broken heart, and the reality that God is near even if we have trouble believing it. These are the most faithful prayers that we can pray. They're messy, but they're anchored in that mustard seed faith that says, Lord, you you seem asleep to this. But I still believe that somehow you will make this right. And those are our other prayers. And then there's please prayers. Too often, 
I think we see please prayers when we ask God, when we, we sort of come to God with a request. Sometimes we reduce when we hear the word prayer. This is all that we think of, please prayers. And as we've seen, that's not all there is to prayer in the Bible. But this is a big category because Scripture talks about it quite often. And it's true. There are please prayers. Especially in our text, we're going to see them. And it's good to give childlike requests to our generous and adoring Father. These are request prayers, or please prayers. And then lastly, there are what some have called sorry prayers. This is when we confess our sins to God. The word confess is interesting. It just basically means agreeing with God. It means same word. You're saying to God something he already knows. But like in a human friendship, it's fractured. We name our part. We name our sin. God is without sin. We come to him and we say, this is, I name it. How I failed to love you. This is how I failed to love others. And what I've done and what I've not done. And that's confession. We say, sorry. Will you forgive me? And he assures us of his forgiveness at the cross. And so that's sort of six prayers just helicoptering out from Scripture to see that the sort of teaching on prayer in Scripture is very diverse. But they all have one thing in common, even in their diversity. They demonstrate, even in body, an authentic humility before God, don't they? In all of them, in all of them, we are like John the Baptist. He must increase and I must decrease. When we pray, we are embodying humility. It's humility in action. It's not just saying humility is good. When we actually pray, we are enacting humility. It's one of the purest enactments of humility that I can think of. Prayer. Anybody on their knees praying is essentially saying uncle. Is essentially enacting like the first step in AA. I can't do this. I am unable. And in each case, no matter what prayer you're talking about, you are acknowledging your need, your inability, and God's very ability despite it. That's prayer. And this is important. Because prayer is not really the point of the passage that we just read aloud. I mean, it is, but in a way it isn't. Because this power, at least the title of my Bible says, the power of prayer. I would say, really what this text is about is the power of God. And prayer is simply the posture through which we encounter His power. He invites and hears our prayers. That's the promise here. Prayer is humility. Now let's not forget before we dive in that humility is just a giant theme in the Sermon of James. Do you remember? Just think back when we started. James was just talking about humility time and time and time again. God resists the proud but gives grace to the who? To the humble. Every good and perfect gift is from where? It's from above. If anyone lacks wisdom, what do they do? They ask these are humble postures. Humility, 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 humility over and over and over again. And so I think it's very fitting that James concludes his sermon with prayer. A lot of scholars will say, this is a weird ending to a sermon, isn't it? He's just talking about prayer and restoring someone who's wandering. That's a weird ending. And I say, I don't think so. I think this is actually quite fitting because James has been all about humility. In fact, if I were pressed to 
title James's sermon. I would maybe title it The Humility That Jesus Brings. And if I were to end the sermon on humility, I couldn't improve upon how James does with prayer, which is embodied humility. You don't pray for crowd. You can't. You don't pray if you feel okay with your own abilities. You just simply can't. Because it's an admission of need. An inability. But when you come to the end of yourself, you do pray. Don't you? So James wants us to pray when we encounter problems. And he unpacks in this passage three specific problems. Two that come from without... One that sort of comes from within. Two from the outside, one from the inside. Two from the outside is suffering and sickness. And the one from the inside is sin. And in each of these, he shows us a different way than what we sort of knee-jerk do in our functional atheism. He shows us a different way, and the way is prayer. So let's look at each in turn. So prayer first is humility and suffering. In verse 13, James shows us two kinds of sufferers, really. And he applies prayer to both of them. So first, prayer when we are downcast. In verse 13, James talks about those who are having a hard go. And he asks a rhetorical question. He asks, is anyone among you suffering? And that's sort of a rhetorical question. You know this now. Because everybody in this church is basically having a hard time. The answer is yes, there are a lot of folks who are suffering. And to this person, he says, let them pray. But there's another kind of sufferer in this church, and it's right after. He says, is any of you cheerful or happy or courageous, we could say? Look again at verse 13. He says, is anyone cheerful? So in those days, this is important, you could be cheerful in the midst of profound suffering. In fact, that's probably the most common meaning of this word. So in the book of Acts, Paul uses this exact word, cheerful, when describing Himself and a bunch of shipmates who are about to like go under. There's a storm brewing, they're all on a ship, and, and, and James, I'm sorry, Paul in this case, is simply saying, hey, be of good cheer or be courageous. It's a sort of, in that hymn, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. Are there problems going on? Of course there's problems going on, but some mysterious, surprising way, I'm okay. I'm actually quite cheerful in the Lord, despite what's going on around me. And that's really what James is describing in this text. There's two kinds of sufferers in this church. There are those who are really rocked by what's going on, and there are those who have a surprising, God-wrought, costly joy in the midst of what's going on. And we know this to be true in our experience, don't we? We encounter folks who are all over the spectrum there when they're having a hard time. It just seems to vary from time to time. It's possible to have heart or to be of good cheer, even though you know the ship's going to sink, as the Apostle Paul would put it. And that's likely what James is referring to. They were enduring hardship. But even these folks who have this cheer, James says, you too can pray, sing praises, which is a kind of prayer in song form. And so James says there's two kinds of sufferers, those who are downcast and those who are surprisingly cheerful, and both are to meet their hardship with the humility of prayer. 
in my uh, 20s. I just turned 40 like a few days ago, which is crazy. But in my 20s, I would only call my dad when I had problems. So I kind of try to imagine myself now as a dad, like what that would be like hearing my, you know, my son calling me in, the, in that era of my life. I would be kind of like, oh no. <laughs> Every time the phone rings, I'd be like, oh no, something's wrong. Because that's how I used my phone with my father for so long in my 20s. Something's wrong and I need help. But as I got older, I wouldn't, I wouldn't just call him when things were wrong. I would call him to celebrate things. That's in time, especially towards the last part of his life, I would just call him to be with him. And that's how I think James envisions prayer for the Jesus follower. Whether we're having a hard go or whether we're doing well, we all connect that all of life spectrum, the extremities of life, we connect them all to God in prayer. So the Apostle Paul says, pray without ceasing. I think this is James's version of that same teaching. So if you're suffering this morning, having a hard go, your temptation, I think, will be to ignore prayer. James knows this. And I don't know if you're going if you're trying to fix it right now. I don't know if you're trying to ignore it right now. I don't know if you're trying if you've given up on those two things and you're just despairing it right now. But we can learn from this ancient community of sufferers and from this apostle James, brother of Jesus. We can learn from them that we have a gift sitting on our lap and it's prayer. We call on the Lord. I love how Peter Davids puts it, quote, the point James makes is that one ought not to complain or strike out. One ought not even to bear hardship with quiet resignation, like the Stoics advised in those days. But rather, one should pray, cry out to God, and trust in Him to redress the wrong and correct the evil. God is the one who can be trusted in the dark. In the So if you are tempted to complain or strike out or ignore the pain, all these areas of functional atheism, the ways that we encounter trouble, and respond to it. James offers us better way. We cry out in the name of the one who did not strike out. Jesus. We cry out in the name of the one who did not bury his pain. But endured it for us. Who entrusted himself to his father for you. If you're doing okay this morning. Anybody doing okay? <laughs> who's cheerful. Who's happy. I want you to know. I'm not judging you. We need you, and we need your joy. We need your God-wrought joy in this space. Don't be embarrassed that the Lord is giving you cheer in the midst of the hard times that everybody's having. Because that is a gift from God. So just hear me. We need that. Don't hoard that gift. We need that. Bring it. And don't be embarrassed of it. But your temptation will be unique. Your temptation will not be sort of to ignore pain. Maybe your temptation will be to sort of ignore prayer altogether because you are feeling okay. You have an equilibrium. And James would say, no, no, don't forget God even in that equilibrium. (laughs) Sing praises. Because first of all, the fact that you have a joy is because it's a gift from God. Give Him thanks for that. Sing praises to Him for that. This alone, I think, keeps us humble before the one who is rich but became poor for us. The Father of lights from whom all good gifts come. And if you are feeling cheerful in the midst of the hard things that are going on around us, then that is a good thing. We can sing praises to God for that. And in all of this, in all of this, no matter where you are on the spectrum of the extremities, you are enacting humility through prayer. 
God alone is God, we are not. And so we pray. And so that's the first sort of um, problem that we can encounter and that we are to encounter with a posture of prayer. The second is sickness. James tells us what to do when we encounter sickness. So read verses 14 and 15 with me. Is anyone among you sick? James says. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. So sickness is in a sense another form of suffering. And like suffering just before, James encourages us to pray. Now, I want to say this. The Bible is most certainly not against medicine or doctor care. And we ought to avail ourselves of medicine. But we, I think if we are to take this teaching to heart, we must not allow the blessing of medicine to choke out prayer. It's a both and. And James reminds us of three reasons to pray when we are sick. First is this, we struggle to pray when we're sick. We struggle to pray ourselves when we're sick, and this is why we need others to pray for us. So in verses 14 through 15, James urges the sick person to call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. So the sense that we get here in this text is that the person is so sick that they're lying down and they're too weak to pray, which is why they're summoning others to pray over him. And since this word over is very unique in the Bible, and so a lot of scholars think that what's going on here is a sort of uh, someone who is too weak to pray, too weak to even get up. Which is why James's co-leaders in this church community are called over and encouraged to pray over this person. But it's important to connect this teaching, I think, to verses 16 and 18. If you look further down, you see this teaching about Elijah. Elijah was a human as we are, James says. And yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. And then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain. What is James doing when he's referencing Elijah? Well, Elijah was a rock star in those days. But what James is doing is something interesting. He says, James is human, just like you. So he's saying, what Elijah did in praying powerfully, you also have access to. And so there's an interesting thing going on. On one hand, James is saying, avail yourself of the leadership of the church. Do that. But also, you too can pray for the person who's sick among you. We see that witness all throughout the New Testament. Where it's not just the church leaders who are praying for healing and over those who are sick. Anybody can pray with great effect, James says. Number two, I see that we need, this, this teaching on, on sickness t- uh, tells us that we need more than words often when we're sick. James reminds us that we often need more than words. This is why James encourages the use of oil in this text. To be anointed with oil in those days conveyed something. That God was with you in a special way. Who was anointed in the Old Testament? Kings were anointed in the Old Testament. And it was a sort of visual, even physical demonstration that God was with this person in a special way. It's what they did to royalty. And what James is saying here is saying that when you anoint somebody with oil, when the elders are doing that while praying for you, they are doing more than just pray for you. They are giving you a tangible, even physical hug from God, as it were. Now we know from other New Testament teachings that 
Oil is not necessary when we pray for someone who is sick. We know, therefore, then that oil is not some magic ingredient. We ought not treat it that way. But James does say it's the prayer of faith, which is to say God, that saves or heals the one who is sick, not the oil. However, James here reminds us that God made our bodies, okay, and that anointing with oil is a bodily reminder of something that we usually just say with words. In other words, God doesn't just say, we often talk about the sacraments. In the sacraments, God doesn't just say, I love you. He gives you a hug. He made your bodies, and He wants to convey His love for you in more ways than just audio waves. And while I think the anointing of oil is not a sacrament, I think it teaches us something somewhat similar. Often in our sickness, we need more than words. bodies need reminded that God is near. That we are not alone. God is pleased to remind His people through this practice that you are His. No matter what. So that's number two. I think number three, we need reminded that sickness does not have the final word. We pray when we're sick because it reminds us that sickness and death does not have the final word in the story of God. The story we are living in. James says in verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Now there are usually two approaches to this verse. And they're usually pitted against each other. The first says all that James is talking about is spiritual sickness And all that is promised here is a kind of spiritual, soul-saving experience. And the second says, all that James is talking about here is physical sickness. And what is promised here is immediate healing. Because the word saved here is often used in the New Testament for physical healing. And guess what? I want to say yes to both of those. Uh, The Bible knows no spiritual, physical dualism, first of all. And when James tells us to pray for those who are sick, he expects that healing is possible in this text. But part of what it means to pray in faith is to trust that the real God has the outcome. And he can do what he pleases, and we trust him. That's the prayer of faith. I mean, after all, think about the Apostle Paul, who prayed numerous times, that the thorn in his flesh would be removed, but it wasn't. And Paul could say, in the end, I still believe in faith that it's God's best. Doesn't answer any of the questions that we want answers to. But it is a prayer of faith. But that does not mean that we don't pray with expectation that God can and will heal. It certainly doesn't mean that God can't use sickness and can't use prayer in sickness to heal the person spiritually. To get kind of personal, uh, my dad passed away in 2020. You guys know this. He was uh, diagnosed with stage 4 cancer five years prior, in 2015. And he did two things in those five years. He pursued the best medicine possible. He was up in Columbus all the time at the James. He was in touch with 
specialist in Boston. He went out to Stanford one week. So he pursued medicine. He also pursued the Lord for healing. And in the end, it appears the Lord didn't heal his cancer. Even though God used amazing medicine to give him five unbelievable years that we did not expect. Did you hear what I said? The Lord used this unbelievable medicine to give him five years that we did not expect. Five years that God used in my dad's life in amazing ways. But my dad was the first person to tell you that the Lord healed him spiritually in those five years. He would also tell you he wasn't holding the Lord hostage for physical healing. Even as he prayed for it. His faith wasn't bound in the outcome of that prayer of healing. But he knew in the end... Even cancer doesn't win. Because resurrection. My dad and I would often talk about Lazarus. Who was not just healed of sickness, but was healed of death. In the Gospels. We would talk about how Lazarus, even Lazarus, died again. Which we forget when we read that story. But we don't despair. Why? Because of resurrection. And so my dad made sure to place his final trust in the Lord and in his promise of resurrection, regardless of God's will and his cancer. Prayer is humility. Do you see it? In the face of sickness. It's enacted in flesh humility. We can't fix it. We can't ignore it. We must not despair over it. So what do we do? We pray. And that's humbling. It's a humbling place to be. But when we pray, we appeal to the great physician who has wounds on his healing hands. And who is alive by his resurrection. So we have hope. He will raise us in the last day. So let's pray for one another. Let's just have a renewed, maybe even revival prayer for one another in our sickness. We have a prayer ministry. We pray before church in that corner right there. Every 15 minutes before church, Tom, can you raise your hand? Just Tom's leading our prayer ministry. There are other avenues through which we can pray for healing and pray for one another. So like, what if we took this text seriously? And there was a sort of, um, we kind of, speaking personally, like repented of our cynicism about prayers. And pursued this sort of testimony power that God gives to people. Ask others to pray over you, just as this sick person is asked to do. Ask your elders to pray over you. Or as verse 16 points out, anybody. Anybody. Number three, briefly. Prayer is humility before our sinfulness. So it's prayer. Prayer is humility before our suffering is before our sickness. And then this last point that James gives us is our sin. Our sin. Suffering and sickness are both things that come from the outside and 
Last here, James seems to talk about something that flows out from the inside, our sinfulness. And this is verse 15 and 16, and even how James ends in 19 and 20. Sin presents a major problem. We fail to love God, we fail to love others, we wander, to use the language of verses 19 and 20. And James says in all of these ways too, humility. And in particular, prayers of confession. These are, these are the sorry prayers we talked about at the beginning. And when we do these sorry prayers, we admit two things. We cannot forgive ourselves, and we are prone to wonder. So James says in verses 15 and 16, If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So first of all, notice here that James says, If the sick person has committed sins, he will be forgiven. That word if is very powerful. Especially in those days. Because in those days, there was a strong chain linking sins with sickness. And James, like his brother Jesus, severs that link with that word if. He doesn't deny that there could be some connection. But he also allows for sickness to just be an effect of the fall. As Jesus did. And now... What James implies in all this, though, is easy to miss. It's an easy to miss truth, and it's this, that we cannot forgive ourselves. We need absolution from God, because only He can forgive sins, and so we confess. And we are promised forgiveness. How? Because Jesus, Jesus, He paid the price for our sin. Every sin, past, present, and future that we could ever confess has been laid on Jesus on the cross, so that it is Finished. He was condemned so that we would never be condemned, so that we would be forgiven. And so when we confess, we are putting ourselves in a posture of humility, receiving that very news afresh. New York Times opinion editor David Brooks, he describes how we all walk in life with this sort of guilt rattling around in the back of our soul somewhere like a coin. And James tells us something that nothing else in this world can offer. Forgiveness. Absolution. That coin can be done. God can see your sin and forgive it at the same time because Jesus took your sin through the cross. And so confession, therefore, is a great gift to us to experience that forgiveness. It reminds us of his forgiveness, that we do not forgive, but he alone does. And number two here, this reminds us that we are prone to wonder. When we confess our sins, we acknowledge that we can't forgive ourselves, but we also acknowledge that we are always prone to wonder. And this is how I connect the final two verses to James' discussion in prayer. James just got done talking about the forgiveness of sin through prayer and confession. And in verses 19 through 20, what does James say? He says, My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back... Let them know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save their soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So forgiveness is not just sort of applied in this sermon to the faithful, but to the wanderer as well. James reminds us that we can play a part in bringing the wanderer back. Where? Back to forgiveness, back to this sort of place of grace, this place of profound mercy and forgiveness. We we do this and we, we are reminded again that God alone saves, that He covers what? A multitude of sins. His grace covers a multitude of sins because His grace is a multitude of mercy. 
mercy that we do not deserve. And so we do this as believers, according to James, but we do it gently. We do it gently, having mercy, as as Jude would put it uh, in his letter, having mercy on those who doubt. Why? Because we are sin realists. We know the depth of our own sin. I mean, we just got done talking about the habit of confession. If we are a confession community, if we are a community that is constantly sort of rehearsing God's mercy to sin, then we ought not be surprised when there's folks who are struggling and wondering. It doesn't shock us. And yet, we have a part to play because we can point them to the mercy, the profound mercy to even the wanderer. I mean, when I look at verses 12 through 20, we should basically see ourselves. There's no moral high ground in the restoring of a wanderer. We are the wanderer. Sought out by Jesus. James is just saying, that empowers us to do the same. I love this insight from Mark Sefford, and this is how we'll end. He says, the contemporary church uh, pushes sin and sickness to the side. These two things we just talked about. But James centers these two things. Isn't that interesting? He even highlights these two things. Why? Well, his point is, because it's in these two areas of life, the gospel demonstrates that it's unique power. Think about it. Think about it. Every other salvation scheme, whether it's a philosophy or something else, cannot in the end touch sickness and sin. That's the checkmate of life. Sickness. We, we can't beat death. Sin. We can't, we can't fix sin. We can't fix its, fix its, its effects either. And so James is ending his sermon with an altar call. Isn't he? James is saying, come to Jesus. He alone, he alone answers these two problems. So Lord, we do come to you. In the, in the altar of prayer, this place of humility. I think, Lord, we would ask that you restore to us the shock and awe of the privilege of, of prayer in our life. That posture of humility, though, is the same place where your mercy flows to cover the multitude of sins. We thank you in Jesus' name. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.